Grab your Bibles and let me read you our text. You know, I told you last week we were going to try to put them on the screens and we've already run into problems because you just can't get very many verses on one screen. So it's the first eight verses of Jeremiah chapter one. It'll be on the screen for you, but I hope you'll continue to bring a Bible as we refer to it in the course of the sermon. So you follow as I read from a book that we believe to be the very mind of God as black words on a white page. And they read like this. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, the one I just read you, this one endures forever. Hey guys, uh, the book of Jeremiah opens with a, um, with, by giving you kind of the, uh, the historical moment uh, in which all of this unfolds. Uh, but there's something really unique that I wanted to comment on just quickly and just keep moving. But the, the centerpiece of those first eight verses is really verse two when it talks about the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah. But did you notice how the book opens? It says it's the words of Jeremiah. Wait a minute, which is it? Is it the words of Jeremiah or is it the words of Yahweh, the words of the Lord? Which, which one is it? Well, it's both. And here you get, ladies and gentlemen, really kind of as an aside, a, a very succinct definition of inspiration. You see, the, um, God didn't pen this book, but he did author it. He inspired it. He, uh, he stood behind it. He inspired the men uh, who wrote it. Any way that you'd like to say that would, it would be fine. But I think it's Peter, <coughs> pardon me, I think it's Peter that says it the best in Second Peter chapter 1 where he talks about that no prophecy was ever given by man, uh, but God, as he carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's what happens, ladies and gentlemen, to produce this book. When God got ready to say something, he would find himself a man. And then he would take that man, flaws and all, and he would lift him up, uh, inspire him by the Spirit, carrying him along as when he wrote, and then when he got finished, he'd set him back down. <laughs> That's what you have here. So you see, the words of Jeremiah are really the words of Yahweh to Jeremiah. The words of Jeremiah come to you via the pen of Jeremiah. That's inspiration that's right there just as an aside. Now, guys, um, 
we'll have to develop that whole theme at another time and spend the whole time on it. But I just wanted you to see that little note about inspiration. But for now, what I want to give you is just a little bit, um, a little bit of detail on the life and times of Jeremiah, because that's what the text does. It opens up by giving you a little bit of the life and times of Jeremiah. All right. First of all, his life. You notice uh, in verse 7 it says, I'm, I'm a youth. He's a young man at this point. Uh, he is the son of a priest whose name is Hilkiah, which means that Jeremiah is not only a prophet, but he's also a priest. Not all prophets were priests, but certainly the priesthood was the nursery uh, for the prophets, or at least most of them. But what it would mean is that, that Jeremiah is a temple insider. He knows stuff. He's on the inside as a, as a, as a priest, and, and God has called him now to be a prophet. A little bit about his times. It's um, approximated that the book begins somewhere around 625 B.C. You'll notice that it says he begins his ministry under the reign of Josiah, who is the son of Ammon. Those are both in the text. What is not in the text is that Ammon's father was a man by the name of Manasseh. Manasseh was a king in Israel or in Judah that was perhaps the very nadir of all of the wickedness in Judah and Israel. He introduced Israel to just about every heathen abomination imaginable, including child sacrifice. That was under Manasseh. But then Manasseh died. His son Ammon takes over. And Ammon is just as wicked as his daddy. And he's assassinated. Then Josiah takes over. That's what the text tells you. This is Josiah, the son of Ammon. Now, guys, Josiah was one of the few good kings in all of those kings that are mentioned in the Old Testament. He comes um, to take over in Judah when the nation is at the bottom of her spiritual barrel. She is um, completely uh, uninterested and indifferent to Yahweh. I'll show you that in a minute. So what Josiah, the good king, starts to do is to try and reestablish the worship of Yahweh in Judah. The first thing that he does is that he announces that the temple built by Solomon is so neglected and in such disrepair that they're going to launch a cleansing of the temple, a repair, a construction project in the temple. It's got to be fixed so that the worship of Yahweh can be reinstituted. That project is launched. And in the midst of the construction project, we're told in 2 Chronicles 34, that in the midst of the construction, some workman finds the book of the law. How do you ever lose it? Israel, the people of the book, have lost their book. And it is no wonder, ladies and gentlemen, that the country is disintegrated 
Because, you see, I mean, uh, uh, when there's no book, uh, how does one know how to live one's life? I mean, <clears throat> who is it that gets to define moral right and wrong when there's no book? How negligent, how careless, how unbelieving does a nation have to be to lose the book? I don't know. But you might ask this nation. You know, guys, there's a, there's a statement in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 29, that used to get used a lot. I mean, in fact, it was the title of books, and uh, they, they would made it into a banner, and, and uh, they would use it at missions conferences. And here's the text. Many of you have heard it. Without a vision, the people perish. That's uh, Proverbs 29, 18. But that's really mishandling the Hebrew. And in all of the later translations, they've corrected it. Uh, as far back as the New American Standard, which was in the 50s. They've corrected that translation, and it doesn't read like that in the ESV. If you want to look at it, it's Proverbs 29, 18. It doesn't say that anymore. I mean, it says it, but it, it's, it's restated and, and restated better. It says, when there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off all restraint. When the voice of God is not available, not heard, not around, not there, what do the people do? Well, they cast off all restraint. Because you see, when you lose this book, <clears throat> people are left to invent their own truth. That's a little bit about the times of Jeremiah. But it's also descriptive of our times, is it not? You know, you Christians, you're awfully judgmental if you're going to uh, oppose uh, transgenderism. Ladies and gentlemen, how did we get here? Who would have ever dreamed that I would have to be in a position of defending the existence of only two genders, male and female? But no, 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 we have more than that now. We have male, female, and other. How did we get here? I'll tell you. I'll tell you how we got here. <laughs> pretty simple we lost the book oh you christians you uh, the problem with you christians is that you're uh, you're so intolerant intolerant folks um how did intolerance become the nation's number one virtue tell you how we've lost the book so tell me 
Who gets to define ethics and morals? Where do we go to, where do we go to discover that? Who has the final say, if anyone? If, um, if it's not coming from this book, and it's not, I mean, this book, I mean, my goodness, um, it's lost. I mean, you, you, you can't take it to school with you. No, 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 you wouldn't want to be caught with one of these. And the government, uh, you know, scoffs at it, and the marketplace and media, they, they think it's just nonsense. Ladies and gentlemen, tell me, let me ask you again. How careless, how unbelieving, how undefiant, how apostate does a nation have to be to throw this book away? I don't know. Just look around, though. And I can tell you this much. This book is lost. And because it is, we have abject moral chaos on our hands. Oh, that filthy, nasty, horrible, terrible king Manasseh, he sacrificed children to Moloch. How did you come to that place, Manasseh? Well, I mean, you know, it's pretty easy. We don't have any book. Well, how did we get to the place where we are in a serious discussion about how many genders exist? How did we get here? We lost the book. There's a statement, as many of you know, in the book of Judges that says, it's actually, it's a refrain in the last five chapters that says, there's no king in Israel, and so everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It's the same thing Proverbs 29 is saying. When there's no prophetic utterance, the people cast cast off all restraint. Yep, that's what happens. And you and I, ladies and gentlemen, are living in it. So the culture is left to do whatever it defines as acceptable because the word of the Lord... I don't know where it is. It's gone. Even in the church. They lost it. How do you do that? Jeremiah <clears throat> burst onto the scene um, in a time of revival. Because during the reign of Josiah, when they're repairing the temple, they find the book. And Jeremiah has been a prophet for about five years when the book is found. Now, let's move on. Let me just go back to Josiah and these first three verses. Because the first three verses are giving you something, folks. They're giving you some history. Let Let me kind of sum it up real quickly, or try to. During the ministry of Jeremiah, there were five kings. But only three of them are mentioned in the text. Uh, the other two are not mentioned, and we think it's, they're not mentioned because they both served only three months apiece. Josiah, uh, after Josiah um, dies, Josiah, the idiot, a good king, was uh, killed in an ill-advised battle with Pharaoh Necho that he didn't have to fight. Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, he was killed at Megiddo. That's found in 2 Kings chapter 23. 
So Josiah, the good king, uh, goes out into a battle that he didn't have to go to and is killed. So the good king is gone and um, uh, his son takes over and his son is named Jehoahaz. And Jehoahaz uh, reigned for three months, count them. Then his brother Jehoiakim reigned for 11 years and was followed by Jehoiachin, who reigned for another three months, who then gives way to Zedekiah, who reigns for 11 years, and he is the last king of Judah. He, in essence, as you're going to see later on in the book, he becomes the villain of the book, Zedekiah does. Now, let me, let me bore in just a little bit more. <clears throat> um, Josiah is killed, and uh, Jehoahaz takes over for only three months, but then his son, uh, I think it's his son, maybe it's his brother, Jehoiakim is put on the throne of Jerusalem by Pharaoh Necho or uh, the Egyptian king. Uh, He lasts for, oh, 11 years, but um, then the Babylonians and the Egyptians get into a big fight at uh, Carchemish in 605 BC, and the Babylonians win. So then Jehoiakim changes his allegiance over to the Babylonians, which lasts for about three years, and then he decides to change his allegiance back to the Egyptians. <laughs> you lost yet? Do you care? <laughs> Let me put right here. <clears throat> um, Nebuchadnezzar decides that he's going to punish um, Jehoiakim. And he um, mounts a, a military expedition comes to Jerusalem, but um, (laughs) Jehoiachin has died. And his son has taken over, and he is left to face the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar. Now you say, what difference does all that make? I get that. Maybe those of you who love history like that. but, But here's the point that I want you to see, folks. This book opens up with a section on history. Um, This book does not shy away from history. The God of this book did not emanate from the the, um, uh, navel of the pantheon of Greek god Zeus. No, 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 no. Folks, this book invites you to check things out because they are rooted in, not myth, but history. So you can go see whether all of this is historically verifiable. You know, I I, I always love to show people this. Uh, You may not think it's funny. I I think it's really funny. But uh, it's in John 21. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but it's just uh, verse 11, where Jesus is crucified, he's resurrected, he spends 40 days making appearances after his resurrection, and you remember one of those was on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, and he restores Peter, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, do you love me? You know, that's the chapter, but before all that happens, in verse 11, you remember there was a big catch of fish, and Peter finally recognizes it's Jesus, but here it is. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled uh, the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Did that move you? There was 153 fish. Why does the Bible include that statistic? Why does it give us that detail? 
because somebody counted them. It was a part of the story. And thus it invites you to go ask. 153, why no one's ever caught that many fish in one? It's an invitation, ladies and gentlemen, to go check out the story. That's what this is. It's an invitation to go review the historic record and see if all of this that he says is true. In contrast, just to give you an idea, go read the Koran. You know how much history you get in the Koran? Very little, if any. You want to know why? Because the history of Islam and Muhammad are something that they're not proud of and they don't want you to read. But Christianity invites you to go check this story out because it is rooted in verifiable human history. Now, let's go back to Jeremiah. Um, It is to this man who labored under five different kings in a decadent age to which the word of the Lord came. Folks, that phrase, the word of the Lord came, appears 97 times in the Old Testament. And 49 of them are in the book of Jeremiah. Throughout all that 40 years of ministry that Jeremiah had, and the nation is disintegrating, and he's being mocked and scoffed at and imprisoned and beaten, the thing that concerned him was the message that Yahweh had given to him. Guys, as you look into the book, you're going to find, for instance, in chapter 15, he's told to eat it. I, surely that's figurative. I don't, I don't know for sure. But he, he's told to so imbibe it. In chapter 20, he says that the word of Yahweh is like a fire in his bones. He'd love to deny it, but he simply can't. And then starting at chapter 29 and all the way through 38, you're going to find him persecuted and jailed and beaten and thrown into a cistern all because the word of Yahweh had come to him. But his only concern was to get that right. Folks, Is it any wonder why we see our nation disintegrating? Um, Anybody anybody concerned to get this right anymore? Hmm? Even in the church, you know, guys, um, I I would also say to you, have you ever wondered why your life seems so chaotic? Well, maybe it's because this doesn't 
have a place or at least the right place or maybe you've lost it or maybe you're indifferent to it and maybe you've taken a deaf ear to its message. I can only tell you that 49 times the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and the only concern the man has is to get it right. Because the thing that you need to hear most is what Yahweh said. Not how the election goes, not how your stocks did. What you need more than life is to hear what Yahweh said. Now, one other point, and I'm done. It's in verse 5. Because verse 5 is pretty stupendous, and, and I, I'd like to try and get it right. I want you to notice a couple of three things in verse 5. First of all, it says, I formed you. Um, but notice it says, I formed you in the womb. Where? Where? Well, wait you formed Jeremiah in the womb? You mean to tell me that God is claiming ownership of the womb? That God is saying that he is active in the womb? Yep, that's what it says. And that's pretty huge. But even huger than that, you notice that this call, this appointment, this consecration that came to Jeremiah came before that, um, before I formed you in the womb, <clears throat> um, before in the formative years of Jeremiah in the womb, that's when I consecrated you. That's when I appointed you. And then the hugest of all, is he says, before I consecrated you and before I appointed you and before I wove you in the womb, before all of that, I knew you. Folks, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that Jeremiah and Yahweh were somehow formally introduced? Nonsense. Let me tell you just a quick bit about how the word yada, that's the Hebrew word, how yada is used in the Old Testament. Um, for example, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore Seth. What happened in the tent that night? Did they uh, arrange a formal introduction? No, ladies and gentlemen. This is a man who enters into an intimate relationship with his wife. Or how about this one? Amos chapter 3, verse 2, this is said to Israel, and God says to Israel, you only I have known of all the families on the earth. Guys, when the Bible uses yada in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean to be in possession of certain information. To know in the Old Testament is to love. Jeremiah before I formed you in the womb, I entered into an intimate relationship with you. Before you were formed in the womb, Jeremiah, 
I set my love on you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the hugest of them all. God is a people that he has loved from all eternity. Now, in the midst of this call to Jeremiah, you notice that he, he balks. He, like Moses, balks, and they use a pretty similar excuse. You know, I can't do this. I don't have any skills and all that business. But both of them end up serving about 40-plus years, and you're going to see later on in chapter 44 that Jeremiah is um, forcibly taken to Egypt, and tradition has it that he was stoned 10 years later. But they both served Yahweh in the word of the Yahweh for 40-plus years. And do you see how God assures them that it doesn't matter that they can't speak well and they're young? He says the same thing to both of them, Moses and Jeremiah. It's in verse 8. God's answer to both Moses and Jeremiah is, I'm with you. I, I, I don't desert those on whom I have set my love. Ever. Oh, my brother and sister in Christ, let that soak in. Jeremiah, as hard as things might get, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I bet Jeremiah went back to that promise over and over and over again. And we're going to have to, too. Jeremiah began his ministry about 70 years after Isaiah died. But the difference in Isaiah and Jeremiah is this. Isaiah prophesied things that were 150 years off in the future. Jeremiah lived through the things that he predicted. You know, most people would say that the, that the summary of Jeremiah's message is one of judgment. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Jeremiah lived through that judgment. And he survived. And he survived. Because God kept his word to him. I'll be with you. I found this. I don't know where I found it. Um, I don't even know this guy who's speaking. His name is Lord Macaulay. But I want to read you this quote as we close. Um, as I read it, think of it as descriptive of our nation. I may read it twice. He says this. It is difficult to conceive any situation more painful than that of a great man condemned to watch the lingering agony of an exhausted country. To tend it during the alternate fits of stupefaction and raving which precede its dissolution. And to see the symptoms of vitality disappear one by one till nothing is left but coldness, darkness, and corruption. He's describing Jeremiah watching his nation unravel. Can I read it again? It is difficult to conceive any situation more painful than that of a great man condemned to watch the lingering agony of an exhausted country to tend it during the alternate fits of stupefaction and raving which precede its dissolution and to see the symptoms of vitality disappear one by one till nothing is left but coldness, darkness, and corruption. That was hard. 
very hard for Jeremiah. No prophet has ever had it quite so hard. There was only one thing that was ever harder. Calvary. Where the prophet Jesus Christ sheds his blood for the sin of his people, for the church, for his church, for his bride. The bride that he has known from all eternity. And to that bride, he says, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Even while the country in which you find yourself alternates through fits of stupefaction and raving which precede its dissolution and to see the symptoms of vitality drained, disappear one by one till nothing is left but coldness, darkness, and corruption. To the people of God, I never desert. Those on whom I have set my love. Our Father, would you remind us that we are safe? Would you also remind us that our job is to make sure that we get your word right? To be called names by the culture of bigoted and intolerant is... um, is far less than Jeremiah was called. And and I pray, O God, that you would uh, awaken the church to do her job, a job similar to Jeremiah's, to make sure that we get the word of Yahweh right. And Father, where we get it wrong, would you correct us? Because our greatest hope is that men will see the beauty of what you say and that it might point them to the beauty of the Savior you provided. Might men and women see that the thing that they need more than the next breath that's about to flow through their nostrils is a relationship with you through faith in Jesus Christ. Allow them to see that. That that thing that was everlastingly hard, Calvary, was accomplished. Because God so loved the world that he sent his son. Might we... Be faithful to you. We ask it in Jesus' name.